0: The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Morning church, how are we? It's great to see you. Uh, happy Fourth of July. Happy Independence Day to all my church family, I guess all Americans. Uh, Glad to be together and to be able to join together freely, right, to worship the Lord uh, without uh, uh, fear of, of someone shutting down our gathering because it's against the law, as so many of our brothers and sisters around the world are. So we're grateful. Uh, if you're new, and I know some of you are, um, my name's Brian. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm really grateful that you would take time out of your day uh, to be with us. Uh, if you want to make yourself known, the easiest way to do that is a connect card that's on the back seat back in front of you, or if you're watching us online, you can go to the website, mdcashville.org connect, and just let us know that you're here. Uh, if you're in the room, those connect cards can go in the black boxes in the back on your way out, and uh, there's this, uh, the back side is for prayer requests, so if you need prayer, uh, please fill that out as well, and we'd love to pray for you. Uh, Jeremy, I think you're working on this, but these monitors are getting me a lot of me, and it's very annoying. I uh, know how, no, you, how you feel. Um, <laughs> If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, open it to Acts chapter 6. Uh, of course, we have all the kids in the room this morning, grateful to be able to do that. Uh, part of it was intentional. One of our servant leaders were away, and uh, we, we've done historically family worship Sundays where all the kids are in the room. Um, uh, also, we just didn't have the capacity <laughs> to, uh, to have kids this week, but um, I figured since the kids are in the room, why don't we cover like 75 verses of the Bible? So We're going to try it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to summarize more so than, than verse by verse, but uh, I think the Lord has something really good for us. I'm going to have to unplug that monitor, I think. I, I can't stand it, but it's going to feed back. I'm almost positive. I'm going to turn it off. Yeah. Is that good? Oh, that's so much better. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. it's just It was blasting me. Okay. Um, Acts chapter 6. So Uh, We've we've been in the book of Acts for a little while now, and um, this is our last week in it for a season. We're going to take a little time off uh, to cover some other things, but what we've seen so far in the book of Acts is God's power unleashed through the church. Now, Jesus, if you've been with us, Jesus in Acts chapter 1 said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth so far in the book of Acts, we have seen this take place, that the highlighted ministries that we've looked at have primarily been accomplished through the apostles. Apostles were those who were handpicked by Jesus, trained by Jesus, sent by Jesus, like they spent their three years uh, uh, kind of in ministry school with Jesus, and then he commissioned them out to be uh, the leaders of this early church. But, but in, the, in the recent chapters, we've seen a shift uh, towards the, the what you might call the lay people, the everyday, ordinary believers who are part of this congregation, we saw that in chapter five with uh, Barnabas. If you'll remember, God allowed him to be very generous, and, and they gave him this nickname of, of Barnabas because he was an encourager of the church. Uh, last week, when we got into chapter six, we saw this issue that arose with the widows who were being overlooked—the Greek-speaking widows—and so the, the apostles said to the church, "Hey, pick from among yourselves." a handful to serve the church. And we saw Stephen uh, and Philip, uh, among others, who were chosen for this role to be uh, servants, to be helpers in the church, but they were everyday people. Today, we're going to see God work powerfully through Stephen in particular. The gospel's going to advance through the ministry of Stephen, though it's going to cost him dearly. Which, which raised a question for me. And this is kind of what I want you to be thinking about as we get into the text How might God want to empower you to advance his gospel in your lifetime? See, Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians that if we have surrendered our life to the lordship of Jesus, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So it's not just the the special people, it's not just the professional Christians who get paid to be a Christian like myself. It's not just for us it's for every single person who has said i follow jesus you are an ambassador you are a representative of christ in this world and god is making his appeal to the world through us through all of us so how might god want to empower you to advance the gospel in your lifetime god did not just save us to sit around until glory he has certainly saved us from death hell the the wages of our sin, right? But he's also saved us to his mission. And we are to be empowered. We are to be on mission with God for his glory. So as we look at the ministry of Stephen, what I want want us to kind of look at is what can we learn about what what, what it looks like to be on mission with God for everyday ordinary people who don't have seminary training, who, who aren't on vocational ministry staff? What does it look like for us to be on mission and to be used by God, empowered by God for his glory? Now, because there's so many verses... I'm not going to read the whole passage like I normally do. We're going to hit it in chunks, and I'm going to summarize some places, okay? So let me pray now. Uh, thank you, Mark, for praying for us, but I like to pray as well uh, before we start, and then we'll pick it up in chapter 6, verse 8, okay? You guys with me? Okay, let's pray. Father, uh, we are grateful to be your people, grateful, again, to have the freedom to, to gather in this room as a people without threat. Uh, and we, we recognize, Lord, the, the independence Uh, of our country today, the freedom that we enjoy as Americans. we, We are grateful for everyone who has served this country, who has given their life for this country, so that we might be free. And yet we recognize, Lord, a greater freedom that those of us who have surrendered to Jesus enjoy, that we are free in Christ, free from the bondage of sin, free to love you, and free to enjoy eternity in heaven with you one day. So we give you great thanks and praise, for the freedom that Christ has earned for us. And today, Lord, as we look at these many, many verses of the Scripture, uh, I pray that you would help me to be clear and concise. Holy Spirit, I need your strength and power to communicate what you would want your people to hear this morning through your word. And so we ask for your help in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Now, I would encourage you to read this entire section on your own at some point, uh, but today we're just going to summarize it. <coughs> um If you're a note taker, we're going to start, uh, as I said, in chapter 6, verse 8, and and I just put this heading on it, contending with critics, contending with critics. Look with me at chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, And of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon them and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. All right, contending with critics. Stephen, as we saw last week, his primary ministry was to serve the Greek-speaking widows who were being overlooked. His, His ministry was not to preach and to heal as it was for the apostles. Yet God saw fit to empower him in an unusual way. It says that signs and wonders were being done through him. He's the first non-apostle to have that moniker, that miracles were actually being done through Stephen. We don't know what they were, but they were certainly enough to be recorded here that there were signs and wonders being done through him. Now clearly the widows were being cared for because we never see uh, an issue with widows again. But what we do see is these Greek-speaking Jews who are not happy. And this is a little bit of of, um, assumption here, okay, because the text really doesn't tell us. But these Greek-speaking Jews, the the, um, synagogue of the freedmen, these were Greek-speaking Jews, some of which had been slaves and then been set free. That's why they're called the freedmen. And they gathered together for worship in their own synagogue because they were not Hebraic Jews, okay? Now... My suspicion is that these widows who had been overlooked, who had, be, who had come to Jesus, were now being cared for by the Christians, and these Greek-speaking Jews were jealous. They were embarrassed. They, they were going, well, wait a minute. Uh, they, these used to be our widows, and, and these Christians are taking better care of these widows than we were, and we hate it. Right? So they, they couldn't rejoice that the widows were actually being, being taken care of they were frustrated that the Christians were taking care of them. And so they opposed him. They they debated him. Uh, But the text tells us that they were no match for Stephen because he was full of grace and power and wisdom and faith in the Spirit. So we've seen this in chapter 6. Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of wisdom. He's full of faith. He's, now he's full of grace and he's full of power. And God is working mightily through him. And it, it caused me to ask the question, what's filling our lives? I told you a few weeks ago, whatever fills you controls you. Whatever fills you controls you. What is filling our lives? Are we full of the Spirit? Are we full of grace? Are, are we full of wisdom? Are we full of faith? Or are we full of jealousy uh, and, and um, comparison and insecurity? Uh... uh And anger, what is filling our lives? The same spirit, this Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead and empowers every single believer, he desires to fill and empower you just like he did Stephen. Are we asking him? Are we asking the Holy Spirit to fill us, to empower us, to to give us these gifts of grace and faith and, and wisdom? Now, as far as we know, Stephen was not being obnoxious in Jesus' name, right? He, he, wasn't, he didn't have a bullhorn. Uh, he didn't have a picket sign, right, that said, turn or burn. Like, he, he didn't have, and you've seen those people, right? Uh, and listen, I'm all for all kinds of different methods of evangelism. Can we agree those probably aren't very effective? So he wasn't being obnoxious in the name of Jesus, but these opponents were so angry that they were actually willing to break commandments in order to put a stop to them. They conspire together. They gather false witnesses. Did you see that? That's actually one of the Ten Commandments. Do not bear false witness. And these Jewish folks who would have loved the law of God are willing to break the law of God in order to put a stop to the movement of God through Stephen. There are some people even in our world today, who hate the name of Jesus so much that they will go to almost any length to put a stop to it, to silence. And so they accuse him. They, they gather these folks together, and they, they make these outrageous claims of blasphemy. There's four accusations. They say that Stephen is speaking against Moses and God. Isn't it interesting that they say Moses first? He's speaking against Moses. I mean, and God, too. <laughs> and then he's speaking against the law and the temple. Now, there's nothing that the Jews held more sacred than the law and the temple. So that got the attention of the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, uh, this group of Pharisees and scribes and, and sort of the muckety-muck of the religious uh, elite. And so they arrest him, and they bring him before this whole council, which we've seen, what, twice now already, Right? Peter and John were before the council, then all the apostles were before the council, and now Stephen alone before the council. These are serious charges. And yet, Luke Luke makes note that his face, verse 15, was like the face of an angel, that in some way he glowed. And, And perhaps he's hearkening back to Moses, when Moses received the law from God and he he came down from Mount Sinai, he glowed and he had to put a veil over his face because his his face was shining. I also uh, thought of Psalm 34, which says, Those who look to him are radiant. Radiant. They will never be put to shame. So here's Stephen, accused of all kinds of things against God, the very God that he's serving. And these folks accusing him are looking at him, and he is radiant. Why? Because he's looking to Jesus. Now listen, if you, if you love Jesus, if you serve Jesus, if you stand for Jesus, if you speak for Jesus, you will contend with critics. It probably is never going to be as severe as what Stephen endured against this council. But if you love Jesus and speak for Jesus and stand for Jesus and serve Jesus, you will face critics. There will be people who make fun of you. There will be people who, who just who, who t- try to tear you down because they hate the name of Jesus. And it's interesting that there's, there's no other name that people get so flustered about. But the name of Jesus, they do. And they hate his name. And they don't want his fame to spread. And they they don't want the gospel to go forward. And they will do almost anything to stop it. But remember, when and if you face critics, don't fear. Stephen is experiencing what Jesus promises us in Luke chapter 21. That when they persecute you and when they bring charges against you. Jesus says in Luke 21, don't worry about what you're going to say. Trust the spirit and the spirit will give you words. That's exactly what's happening. So, point one, contending with critics. Now, point two is connecting the dots. Now, there's a lot of verses here. So I'm going to set it up, and then we'll look at a couple chunks, okay? Because Stephen has a very long message. Uh, It's actually the longest sermon in the entire book of Acts, and he's not even a preacher, which is probably why it's the longest. Uh, uh, And it's his first sermon, probably, and it's definitely his last sermon. But I want you to see how, how Stephen's able to connect... The dots here. So he's, he's drugged before the Sanhedrin, and how does he respond? Look, look with me at verse uh, 1 of chapter 7. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Are these accusations against you true? And Stephen said, He opened his mouth to say, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, Haran. And after this, after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. We'll stop there for a minute. So he's dragged before the Sanhedrin. How do you face these charges? And Stephen opens his mouth to speak. He starts to tell them the gospel. Now this is not a sermon that he studied and prepared. Okay, this is this is ad lib. This is off the cuff. Uh, this is he's backed into a corner and he starts speaking the truth of God's word. Which is a good note to us, right? First Peter. Uh, Peter, who has done the same thing, right? He was faced against the Sanhedrin. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that we should always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us. And again, he's not just saying that to leaders. He's not just saying that to, you know, Delta Force apostles. He's saying it to every Christian. Always be ready. Stephen knows his Bible. And we must be a people who know our Bibles enough to be able to connect the dots as we're going to see Stephen connect the dots. Now listen, if you don't know the Bible very well, don't be ashamed. Just start reading it. (laughs) Pick it up and start reading it and read it some more and read it some more. If you're not big on reading, listen to it. There's a whole group of people in this church who've been on a plan of listening to the audio Bible. I think it's in 90 days just listening to it. Instead of music, instead of podcasts, whatever, just filling your heart and mind with the word of God through someone who doesn't put you to sleep by their reading of it. Because <laughs> that's the problem with those audio Bibles sometimes is they're like, and then this is what, and you're like, good Lord. <sighs> There's some good apps out there that can help you with that. But, but here's what you'll find as you start to read the Bible more and more and more, as you start to listen to the Bible more and more and more, as you start to soak in the scripture more and more and more, you will start to see it Connect. So many people think that the Bible is just this random collection of all kinds of crazy stories from all these different times and places, and it is, but there's, there are threads that are woven all the way through these stories, all the way through these books of the Bible. They're all going somewhere. And the more that you start to read and understand, the more that you start to listen and process and soak in the Scripture, you will start to see these threads that run all the way through the whole of Scripture. And so what Stephen is going to do is he's going to lead a Bible study for experts in the Bible who are also experts in missing the point. Jesus said as much of these people, right, that you search the scriptures, this is John 5, you search the scriptures hoping that you might find life in them, but you miss me, whom the scriptures are all about. And so here's what he does. He starts at the beginning with Abraham. He says, hey, remember Abraham? Now, here's something you need to know. Um, Before we get into this, when I say they're experts in missing the point, not only did they miss the point about Jesus, but they missed the point about their mission. Because when God called the people to himself, they were supposed to be a light to the nations. You remember the promise to Abraham, you will be a blessing to every generation, to every nation. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. They were to be God's chosen people who were a light to the nations. But what started to happen over the years is that they became very proud of their land, the land that God had provided for them, very proud of their law, very proud of the temple. And they started to look down on everyone else who wasn't like them. Instead of seeing themselves as a light to the nations, uh, they they rejected the nations. In fact, uh, this is a common prayer of the day. Uh, Jewish men would wake up in the morning and say this, Thank you, God, that I am not a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. They missed the point. So Stephen starts at the beginning. Remember Abraham? He goes, where was he from again? Was he from Israel? No, there was no Israel. Where was Abraham from? Mesopotamia. Where's that? Iraq. That's modern day Iraq. Abraham was a pagan man in a pagan land. But God spoke to him. God called him. God promised him. God sent him. Now, uh, there's a, a pastor named Sinclair Ferguson. He used to pastor First Pres Columbia in South Carolina for a long time. Scottish guy. He wrote a little book called Preaching Christ from the Old Testament. And he's, an, he's a master of connecting the dots. Here's what he says about Abraham's story Abraham points us to Jesus because he answered God's call to leave what was familiar and go out into the void where he would create a new people of God. You see that? So Stephen is saying, hey, remember Abraham? It's really about Jesus. Then he skips some some time. Abraham has a son named Isaac, a miracle. Uh, Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob gives birth, or his wives give birth to 12 sons who are the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? Some of you are just now going, what? That's how it goes? Yes, that's the lineage. So then Joseph is one of those 12 sons. And I'll look with me at verse 9. Are you guys following me? I know I'm all over the place. Okay, verse 9 of chapter 7. And the patriarchs, that's the, twel- the, the other 11 sons, jealous of Joseph, you know, because he had that multicolored dream coat and he had visions from God. They sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. And God rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. And now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. We'll stop there. So now he's telling the story of Joseph. Joseph, he did. He had this coat that his father had given him. He had these dreams, these visions that he was going to be somebody one day, and his brothers hated him for it. So they rejected him. They threw him in a pit. They told his father he'd been killed, and, and somebody came along and, and pulled him out of the pit, and they sold him into slavery. Uh, and, and then he was uh, in Egypt as a slave. He, he kind of worked his way up in favor, became part of Herod's, uh, sorry, Pharaoh's household. There's this whole Potiphar thing, which you might have heard about. Uh, Joseph runs from sin, he gets punished for it, he's in jail, and then again he has dreams and visions, he helps explain, (coughs) excuse me, Pharaoh has visions, Joseph helps explain the visions, and he finds favor again, and he becomes in charge of this whole household. Well, as the text tells us, later on, uh, Joseph's brothers, because of the famine, they come to Egypt to find grain, and sure enough, here's their brother that they sold into slavery, who's now their savior. So Joseph saying, hey, where was it that God was with him again? Was it in Israel? Oh, wait, no, it was in Egypt, a pagan land. And Joseph became savior to his people where again? Oh, right, not Israel, Egypt. In all 70 plus, that's the entire nation of Israel at this time, all of them came to Egypt. Joseph points us to Jesus, who, at the right hand of the king, forgave those who betrayed him and sold him and used his power to save them. Then he skips 400 years. What we know about those 400 years is that uh, God's people began to grow and multiply in the land of Egypt. Uh, Over that time, the pharaoh died and a new pharaoh was put in place. He did not have the same relationship with Joseph uh, that everyone else did. Uh, Joseph eventually died as well. And this new pharaoh did not like that the people of God were growing in his land. And so he oppressed them and enslaved them. For 400 years, they were enslaved. Until God brought this man Moses. Moses. Moses was an Israelite, he was, uh, he was born, they, uh, the Pharaoh, man, it's so hard to condense all this stuff, Pharaoh wanted to kill all the, all the uh, Israel men, all the boys who were born, so uh, this one little boy, Moses, is saved. They put him in a little basket, he floats down the river, someone in, in uh, Pharaoh's household finds him, and the daughter of Pharaoh actually ends up raising him as her own. So he's an Israelite, but he's raised in Egypt, educated in Egypt all this kind of stuff. He eventually realizes that he is an Israelite, okay? And so he wants to go visit his people. He sees what's going on there. Uh, He sees a conflict between two gentlemen. Uh, He tries to intervene. He ends up accidentally killing one of them, thinking no one saw it, but they did. And when he gets confronted about it, he runs away to the land of Midian. That's where we pick up the story. Look at verse 29. At this retort, meaning they said, hey, Are you going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, "'Take off your sandals from your feet, "'for the place where you are standing is holy ground. "'I have surely seen the affliction of the people here in Egypt, "'and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. "'And now, come, I will send you to Egypt.' "'This Moses whom they rejected, saying, "'Who made you a ruler and a judge?' "'This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer "'by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush.'" Now, here's his point. Where was it that God met Moses? Midian, not Israel. A pagan land. And what happened? God spoke to him there. He actually told him that there was holy ground there, which means there was holy ground outside the holy land. And by the way, just like Joseph, Moses was rejected by the Israelites. But God used him anyway to be a savior to his people, to redeem them, to rescue them out of slavery. Even when Moses goes up to get the law from God, the people of God are breaking the law of God. They make the golden calf while he is up there, and they start worshiping idols. Moses points us to Jesus, who stood in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediated a new and better covenant. And then finally, he addresses the temple. So what he's doing here, I failed to mention. Remember the accusations against God, against Moses, against the law, against the temple. Okay, so in talking about Abraham, he sort of addresses the God part. Uh, With Joseph, he addresses the the land part. Uh, With Moses, he addresses Moses and the law. And now he's going to address the temple. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness. In the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. He's talking about the tabernacle here that traveled with the people throughout the wilderness according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with them, uh, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before their fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet... The most high does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So here's what's going on. During the wilderness, the journey out of Egypt and into the promised land, that 40-year camping trip, God said, hey, I want you to build a tabernacle. This is a place where my presence will come and meet with you. And so they did that. They come into the promised land, and then David is like, you know what, let's build him a permanent house. He needs a temple. And God's like, I don't need that. You don't need to do that. God never required a temple to be built. He allowed it, but he allowed it with Solomon, David's son. Solomon builds the temple, but he didn't need it. He actually quotes here from the prophet Isaiah. It's Isaiah who said, God doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in in, in these man-made places. The temple is not God's actual literal house. It's simply the symbol of His presence. And did you know the temple points us to Jesus? Because Jesus is not limited by a fixed location or continual sacrifices. Jesus made a one one time for all sacrifice on the cross, and he has brought God's very presence to be with us always. So here's, here's Joseph's whole point, okay? Thank you for your patience in following me down that rabbit trail. Joseph's whole point is this. It's never been about the land. It's never been uh, uh, primarily about the law. It's never been primarily about the temple. God's power and God's presence has always been demonstrated in and through a willing people, wherever they are. That's how he's worked then, and that's how he works now, in and through those who trust in Jesus. That's his whole point. So he's connecting all these dots throughout the history of God's people to show them, ultimately, this is all about Jesus. Now, You guys hanging in? All right, one last piece here. Stephen is going to confront their unbelief. Confronting their unbelief. Now look with me at verse 51. He's going to round this thing out, give them some good inspiration. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. When they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, and Samaria, except the apostles. So Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of wisdom. He's full of power and grace. And he confronts their unbelief. He calls them stiff-necked, which is actually a term that Moses used for the people of God as well, meaning they're stubborn, they're resistant. It's like uh, if you've ever walked a dog who's stubborn, and you pull, and they just, right? Right? We have, we've had pit bulls historically and they are muscular and they do not want to go where you want to go. Uh, And so if you put the thing around their neck, they just love it. They're just like, they go forward, right? He says, that's how you people are. He confronts their hard heartedness, their resistance. He says, look, God sent all kinds of prophets to warn you and to, to instruct you. And all of them foretold about the Messiah, Jesus, and you never listened to him. But then he actually came. You didn't listen to him either. In fact, you rejected him and you killed him. Jesus actually has a parable about this, right? Uh, about the father who owns the vineyard and he sends all these, these representatives and they kill him all. Then he sends his own son and they kill him too. He says to them, you, you venerate God's law, but you break it. You, you break it by lying. You, you break it by falsely accusing and arresting. People who who stand for Jesus, you break it by killing Jesus and by abusing the other uh, followers of Jesus. Here's his whole point. Don't you see? You don't don't follow rules to be righteous. You surrender to the righteous one. You don't go to a place to be forgiven of your sin. You go to a person. His name is Jesus. Stephen says, look, you, you are not in conflict with me you are in conflict with God. And that's the reality for some of you this morning. Now look, there, there are some who have honest questions and honest doubts, and they wrestle with, you know, is the God of the Bible really true, and is Jesus really who he says he is? And, and, and God welcomes your doubts and your questions. But there are others of you who are just stiff-necked, just stubborn. You, you want to do what you want to do. And you, you want to come to church so you feel kind of good about yourself, and then you want to just go live however you want the rest of the week, and you never want to surrender. And, and Stephen is telling you right here you, you either surrender now or you will surrender eventually, but it's not going to go well for you. This isn't a game. So, at this, what did the religious leaders do? They repented and trusted in Jesus, didn't they? <laughs> No, they were enraged. In fact, the literal translation here is they were cut to the heart, which is interesting because that's the same kind of language that's used in Acts chapter 2 when Peter first preaches that message. And it says, at hearing this, they were cut to the heart, except there's a different word used for the word cut. In Acts chapter two, they were pierced in the heart. They were grieved over their own sin, and they trusted in Jesus. Here, the word is a violent cutting, like sawing in two. In other words, they they, they were they were ripped open, and they didn't like it. And, and there was a violent reaction to what they were hearing here. So, what do they do? They they shove Stephen out of the city. And the way that they would stone someone back then, and won't get too graphic, uh, essentially they would shove them over the edge of a cliff maybe 10 feet or so, onto a pile of stones. And if they didn't die then, they would start chucking rocks at them. And the hope was one would hit them in the chest or the heart and crush them to where they would die. And so Stephen has this experience, and they're all enraged, and they are, they are throwing these stones down. And what does he do? I, I just cannot get over this. What is his response? Lord, don't hold it against them. Just like Jesus, isn't it? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And towards the end, he says, receive my spirit. And he, and he catches this vision. And did you see what it said here? He says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, we know this from other places in the Bible. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place, and he cried out, to Telestai, It is finished. The work was done. Hebrews 10 tells us that uh, that the prophets stand daily in the temple because the work of offering sacrifice for sin is never done. But when Jesus offered a sacrifice once for all time, what did he do? He sat down. So Stephen now says, he's standing. Why is he standing? He's honoring Stephen. He stands up. He says, welcome home. And Stephen closes his eyes in death and he opens them and he sees Jesus face to face. And I imagine because the scripture says that it's, it's for, it's coming for us, that the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't we long to close our eyes in death and open them in the face of our Savior and to have him say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So we see here that all these enraged people take, out their, their, take off their outer coat because, you know, when you're warming up to throw stones, you've got to get limber. So they take off their outer co- uh, coat so they can throw stones better. And they lay them down at the feet of this man named Saul. Now, we'll, we'll see this later. Saul becomes Paul. He meets Jesus, and he becomes a prolific church planter and actually writes most of the New Testament. But right now, he still hates Jesus. He still hates everything that Jesus stands for. And so he begins to really ratchet up pressure on the church. And people flee Jerusalem. This church has grown to thousands and thousands. And now the pressure, the persecution on the church is so great that these people are starting to flee Jerusalem. What people? Everyday, ordinary believers like you. The apostles actually stay back in Jerusalem. right? They're going to they're stay there and absorb the persecution that's coming towards them, and the people flee. And where do they go? Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And what do they take with them? Gospel message, power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' promise that you will be my witnesses is coming to fulfillment, not in the way that they thought it was going to happen. They They couldn't ever have imagined it would come through persecution, even though Jesus promised it. But though these religious leaders try their best to squash the, 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 the plans of Jesus, his plans are actually being accomplished. And the message of the gospel is going out. To the degree that, when, when Saul has his encounter, meets Jesus, and, and, and goes out on missionary journeys, there are certain cities that when he gets there, there are already believers in that city. Because the everyday ordinary Christians took the gospel with them in the power of the Spirit, and they started telling people about Jesus. And when he got there, the work was already started. So in the coming chapters, uh, in, in a month or so, we will see the spread into Jerusalem, or through Jerusalem, that's what we've seen so far, into Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And I want, you to, I want you to just dwell on this for a minute. The entire reason that we are sitting here today talking about Jesus, loving Jesus, hearing about Jesus, is because spirit-empowered disciples of Jesus took the gospel with them in the power of that spirit. They were faithful ambassadors of the kingdom. And the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth. They they could never have imagined that we even would exist, right? When when they heard Jesus say the ends of the earth, they were thinking like what they knew then, which was not here. I want you to realize like God loves you so much that he's empowered witnesses to go with his message in his spirit to proclaim the name of Jesus to the point that you and I have heard about it. And now we are caught up in this and have a responsibility as well. And so I'll close with the same question I started with, which was this, how might God want to empower you to advance the gospel in your lifetime? Next week, we're gonna start a study, a quick study in the book of Jonah, where we will see how God uses one reluctant (laughs) prophet one reluctant messenger for his purposes to save an entire city. How might God want to use you? How might God want to empower you to advance the gospel in your lifetime? Um, I'm going to invite the band to come back up, and as they do so, we're going to move into a time of response now. I don't have questions for the screen today, but I I am going to lead us into communion. There should be a communion cup in the seat back in front of you. If you're on the front row, there's some little baskets that have communion cups in them. Uh, and there should be some across the back there as well. Uh, if you are gluten-free, we do have a, a small tray of gluten-free crackers, the wafers that are over on this side uh, underneath the window by the, by the offering box over on that side, so you can go grab one of those crackers. Um, but, but here's what I want you to think about as, we, uh, as you partake in communion. I'm not going to administer it where we're all doing it together. I'll let you do it on your own time, but here's what I want you to be thinking about. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he said, right, this this bread is my body broken for you. It's symbolic, right? He's breaking the bread. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. That Jesus has loved you and you and you and you and you and you so much that he was willing to come like Abraham, like leaving what was comfortable and coming to really the void, right, to create a new people like Joseph. At the right hand of the king, forgiving those who betrayed him, using his power to save them, like Moses, mediating a new covenant. And as the, the new and better and truer temple, he has brought God's very presence into our lives by his sacrifice. Jesus lived a life you could never live, perfect, sinless, above reproach. Jesus died the death all of us deserve. The judgment of God, the wrath of God, he took it on himself, Jesus rose from death, conquering our real enemies of Satan and sin and death and hell, paying the debt that we owed but could never pay. And He sent His church, empowered by His Spirit, on His mission to deliver the truth that Jesus is alive and He's still saving today. And that's why you're in this room. That's why you've heard about Him, because Jesus loves you so much He would send people to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel. So as you sit there and hold that little thimble cup and little tiny wafer, I want you to remember this represents the the body of Jesus which was broken so I could become whole. This this juice represents the blood of Jesus which was spilled for me so that all my sins could be washed away. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I would just ask you not to partake in this, but if you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to partake. Um, Let me pray for us, and we'll have a, a few moments of silence as the band comes up and gets tuned up, and then we'll sing and respond to the Lord. Father in heaven, I'm grateful for these brothers and sisters who are joining us this morning, both online and in person, grateful for the opportunity to study your word. I know it was a slog to get through so many verses, and I I pray that it made sense. I pray that um, as fast as we went through it, that there was something valuable that you spoke to your people. And God, we, we are your ambassadors. You are making your appeal to the world through us, through our lives. And so help us to be faithful to that. Help us to be people who love you, who speak for you, who who, who are saturated in your word, who are courageous like Stephen, that when we are faced with um, with critics, we can respond with love and humility and truth. And even when we face opposition and and, and hardship for following you, that, that we, like Stephen, would Would say, Lord, forgive them. They don't don't know what they're doing. Lord, we want to be faithful witnesses so that a love for Jesus and his gospel spreads like wildfire through this entire western North Carolina region. So we need your help to do that. As we respond to you now, Lord, as we consider your life, death, and resurrection, as we partake in communion, as we sing these songs of celebration, would you be honored and glorified, and would you minister to us by your spirit? Would you give us joy in your presence? We love you, and we thank you for this time together, and we pray your blessing over our time of response in the name of Jesus and by the power of that spirit, amen. amen.